Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, let's talk about settler colonialism. We've had that conversation a few times, but it's one I always feel like I need to return to, right? And and rethink because our our curriculum, you know, our institutions just so typically, I mean, they just don't address the issue. And so I feel like if I don't regularly make intentional efforts to return to it, it kind of, you know, it, it's easy to like let it fall off the map. And I don't want to, which is why we keep having episodes on indigenous topics in in social studies in particular that is true now what about like you as a is a you know a white guy living in, in texas like your own personal experience with settler colonialism Ooh, that's a question it is a question um, right i think you know and it, it goes to all the all the the privileges i kind of carry around right in spaces and 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 legacies I benefit from. And, you know, I'm, I think I've said this before on the, on the podcast, I'm originally from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and feel like for growing up initially in Tahlequah and going to Cherokee Elementary before my family moved to Tulsa when I was in first grade, like I should be deeply steeped in understanding indigenous issues. But it's only as an adult living in Texas, not my first 29 years in Oklahoma, that I'm starting to, I think, gain a better understanding about a lot of indigenous issues, which makes me realize how easy it was to overlook. I think I think uh, the best example of kind of the way that settler colonialism was in, evident in my life is you could see all these ways that indigen, indigenous people were appropriated. There'd be Oklahoma shirts with, mm-hmm. you know, indi- with a Native American with, you know, a headdress on and feathers. And like, we wouldn't know what it means. And I remember like having this like faint sense of like, Oh, look, Oklahoma's diverse. That's great, right? But having no understanding about the way in the indigenous people, the issues they faced in our communities and what it meant. And so it was like this thing. And I had like a shirt that Oklahoma had that. And like looking back now, I'm like, I didn't even know what it meant. You know what I mean? I think that's like probably the settler privilege that I can walk around with right. and put on a shirt. And so um, and nobody ever brought these issues up with me. You know, as a kid, I didn't learn about them in school. So I feel you know, guilt about that. I feel you feel kind of some shame, but then you also, I think the more important thing is thinking like, what can we do about it as educators? I need to do something to help educate students so they don't appropriate or participate in those kind of uses of of indigenous images and spaces and all all of the, you know, other issues that indigenous people are, are facing. I am embarrassed to tell you my high school mascot, which was changed throughout high school. It, we did, we were the uh, Red Raiders. My, yeah, we were the Red Raiders, and then we just became the Raiders. Now, when we became the Raiders, we didn't really have a mascot. It was interesting. It was weird. We just didn't. I don't. It was a really interesting thing that we never actually talked about as a school. We never had the discussion about why we were dropping the first part and like what it meant. We just kind of moved on. People were upset because legacy, legacy, legacy. 
but we had never engaged in the conversation. I, in my 20th high school reunion, I actually did talk to the, I went to a Catholic high school, so I talked to my religion teacher about it, and he was also very mum about it still. I wanted to know more about, like, the process, like, why they, like, did, like, what was the conversation like? But I never got any answers, and I really wish I did, because it would have been interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, not my high school mascot, or my, my high school mascot was, was not related to in, indigeneity at all. It was a horse with a lightning bolt through it, which apparently is a charger. I don't really know much more of the story than that. Well, I think the but lightning my, bolt charges the horses. Uh, yes, that would make sense, actually. But in college, you know, we were the, you know, Oklahoma Sooners. I went to the University of Oklahoma, and it's a Conestaga, you know, Con- is that how you say it? Conestaga, Conestaga wagon. I never right? actually like, knew. I always tell the students that I, I say it both ways. Okay. Okay, good. I'm glad I've you know heard it both ways. One. I've heard it both and ways. So, the right way and then and, yours. That's a psych reference. <laughs> That's true. And so, you know, it's this wagon that is like essentially pioneers and the people who settled Oklahoma during the land runs. And Oklahoma's this whole way of framing it like, oh, well, especially the big land run that's often talked about was on unassigned land. And that's kind of used as an excuse to be like, no one lived there, right? I'm like, well, that first thing doesn't pass the smell test. Like, no one lived there. No one ever lived there. And yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. They, that's not the answer but you know oklahoma as a state was a place where indigenous people were forcibly removed but was also promised to them as a space and obviously was promises were broken but we chant at the games like boomer and sooner they chant that back and forth you guys really like culture the uh the generational wars right well yeah it's not yeah they should change it to okay boomer okay boomer right that would be better um but the but boomers were the ones who lived in Kansas primarily and wanted to settle on in in Oklahoma, particularly the unassigned lands, but of course the whole state. And so there were white settlers that wanted to take those, you know, lands that indigenous people already forcibly removed to. And Sooners were the ones who actually cheated, which we named our state after. They're the ones who went before they the went land sooner started. than and, the others. They went sooner, yes, yes. And there's a scene in Far and Away where you see a Sooner family go early. Is that, but, I mean, that well, with uh, Tom Cruise? It is. It's got Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I, have not and I think seen they like, got married after that. And I forget who Tom Cruise has been married to. I'm not that interested in Tom Cruise's life anymore. I don't know if I was ever, but but the so essentially, you know, it's this it's this two white groups that wanted to take Oklahoma land, and so it's very very much pushing indigenous people out, and that's part of the larger story. So I really don't say it anymore, right? And that's something I've only really come to in you know the last few years, and I just say go OU. Um, so- I still have a lot of, you know, joy in my university. There's a lot of things I take pride in. But, but there are um, some things you're just like, uh. Yeah. The, when I, I recently moved and on my, I think it's my, it's either my recycling or my trash can. There's a, an image of, uh, I think maybe a settler and a Native American shaking hands. And at one mm-hmm. point I was like, okay, no, I need to figure out like which group is this. And so like I looked into it and at this point it's been a couple of months and I totally forget. Uh, which group it was, like which which Native American group, uh, Native American uh, nation lived here. And I'm now thinking, like, what a privilege it is for me to be able to forget. Like, I don't, I mean, I looked at it at one point, but I have forgot. And I don't mean, like, privilege, like, oh, I'm so great. Like, that's not. You don't have to think about it if right. you don't want to. Yeah. You can forget, yeah. yeah. And so I think at this point we should, I'll talk more about this this subject. Christine Stanton. Christine Stanton, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for the uh, the invitation to be part of this important program. And 
really thank you for your continued commitment to talking about how to center and recenter indigenous experiences and in social studies. This is clearly an ongoing challenge. Thank well, you for calling us an important program. <laughs> we'll take what we can get, but it's a lot coming from you because you've been doing this work for a long time. So we really uh, appreciate you because you've been doing it in the field. I know as long as I've been around, I've seen your work. And so can you tell us about your life as an educator? Who is Dr. Christine Rogers Stanton? Well, currently I'm an associate professor of social studies education at Montana State University in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, and which is home to many, many nations. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But I have to be honest, it's a little bit weird for me to talk about myself. And it's taken about 20 years for me to get to the point where I feel truly weird about that. I think as as white educators and scholars, we're really privileged to, to use that word again. We get to occupy a lot of space. And, and by doing that, we often marginalize the other voices and experiences that are around us. And so... For 20 years now, people have been telling me to stop talking so much, to listen more, and to pay attention to especially the indigenous community members with whom I've, I've been fortunate enough to work. And so it, it, now I've gotten to the point where sometimes it, it feels really weird to talk about my background. And I'm trying hard to also think about the some of the advice from a couple of mentors who, who do really emphasize the importance of self-location and really thinking about your background. It was really fascinating to hear you both share a little bit about your own schooling experiences and connections and, and kind of how you're wrestling with your own identities in these spaces. And, and so while simultaneously trying to, to be cognizant of not occupying too much space um, some of that background is really critical in terms of who we are and how we think about social studies, how we think about teaching more broadly. And, and so I think for me, there are probably three kind of key aspects of my educational background that have led me to where I am today and continue to shape my thinking. And, and I'm always learning and always changing in terms of, of my thinking about these topics. But First of all is my, my personal history, my family history. So both of, of my parents come from agricultural backgrounds originally. And my mother's family in particular uh, moved to Montana, came to Montana, and actually settled on lands that relatively recently were stolen from the Blackfeet Nation. And my family stole farms in that, that area and so one of the partnerships that I've developed over the past few years is with schools and community members on the Blackfeet Nation and really trying hard to to think about my own sort of identity in that space, in that partnership. Another key aspect of my background is that I grew up in central Wyoming in a predominantly white community. And I was I, I actually grew up less than two hours away from the Wind River Indian Reservation, but it wasn't until college that I even knew that. And, and I was shocked and dismayed and angry when I, when I learned that. And especially when I learned more about the experiences of the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone people who live there. And, and so that got me really interested in teaching and specifically teaching social studies and 
teaching in a place like Wyoming. So uh, after college, I actually went back to Wyoming and ended up teaching at the high school level in a reservation border town that actually was right there on the edge of the, the Wind River Reservation. And and that's kind of the third sort of pivotal aspect of my identity was was being able to work in that context and learn from community members, especially elders and, and other leaders in the, the community. And as the, the division chair of social studies and English language arts, I really worked hard to try to bring in more indigenous voices, authors, historians, and so on into our curriculum. And I, I was surprised to find quite a bit of resistance from our administration. And it was mostly because of, of finances, the, the cost of buying new books, for instance. And it turns out that, that all of our curricular decisions were made based on rigorous research. And those were the words that my administrator used. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I'll just go find some rigorous research. I know that this is, is a valid issue. So I, I started looking around and, and was really surprised to find that there wasn't that much research out there, especially in terms of social studies and indigenous perspectives. And then even less in terms of reservation border town contexts. And so when I started talking about that with some of the elders from the, the Wind River, uh, one of them said to me, well, I guess you'll need to do the research then. And I thought, <laughs> hmm, <laughs> I know nothing about how to do research. And that's what sent me off toward my PhD work. And so long story short, those, those key pieces I feel really connected. And Bozeman, interestingly enough, is, is about six hours uh, from the Wind River Reservation and about five hours from the, the Blackfeet Nation. And so I'm, I'm kind of geographically located between those two na nations and then surrounded, of course, by many other reservations and, and nations and communities. So that is, uh, in a nutshell, I guess, who I am. That's really uh, quite the story. I mean, not only did you learn about family histories and you know, your location and its relation to indigenous people, both historically and who you were near. But you like made a career off of the suggestion you should do this research. That's pretty impressive. What's some of the, the scholarship and research and projects you've engaged in as you've been doing this work? So there, there have been a few different strands, I guess. One is some of the curriculum work really looking at representations of indigenous histories and experiences in the curriculum. And so trying to fill in that gap that I mentioned that the administrator in the school district said we, we didn't have enough information about. So now just over the past few years, um, between that work as well as work by Sarah Shear and a lot of the others in that have been part of your podcast have really contributed, been able to contribute to the limited body of, of research out there. So that's one aspect. And then another kind of key piece is looking at indigenous community developed stories. And so really thinking about instead of this idea of this outsider researcher, especially an outsider researcher who is a settler, or a, a descendant of settlers coming in to do the research and then leaving. 
what can be done as far as supporting the amazing efforts that are already happening in communities. And that includes community-led efforts, but also youth-led efforts in schools. And so one of the big areas of, of my research is digital story work project, where we have audiovisual storytelling capabilities to support students in schools, teachers who are, are maybe teaching a filmmaking class or an English language arts class or a tribal government class or something along those lines, and then integrating those experiences in a way that, that can be communicated back to the community and to revitalize histories, contemporary viewpoints, and then also some of the, the language research that's out there that's needing to come forward and revitalizing languages. And that's probably one of the the way that you're approaching this digital story work project. That's probably the way your commitment, your long-term kind of commitment to to this issue is, is I know the way I've heard it recommended. Like you can't contact a nation and say, today I would like to do a project and I need you to do it on my timeline now, right? It's like you're going to have to build relationships and they may or may not want to participate in the way that you're doing it. And you have to kind of reach out and engage in those ways. It seems like the importance, though, of it being ongoing, this is not a one-stop thing that this becomes part of our school or our curriculum and our community and things we're working on. That's really cool. And I think you've also done work on like looking at textbooks and the curriculum, right? Uh, what, have, what have you learned? I know we, Sarah Shear in one of our earliest episodes, episode 15, um, talked about her study where they, they looked at the, all the standards. What have you found when you look at textbooks? What narratives and, and stories are, are in there and missing that, that would help us understand indigenous histories or distort those histories? Yeah, great question. So the average U.S. history textbook for high school students is over a thousand pages and growing. And of those thousand pages, a very small percentage have anything to do with indigenous histories and experiences. So that's kind of the first big takeaway is that here is kind of this this group that is absolutely essential to understanding the experience of the development of America. And that group is not even kind of recognized on a, a scale that's reasonable. Another key finding is that the specific discourse that's used in textbooks tends to prioritize and privilege the Eurocentric settler colonial perspective. And not just privilege that perspective, but assume that students and teachers are going to identify with that perspective first and foremost. And so you'll see some some almost us and them kind of language in textbooks and teachers ed editions as well, where the the guidance is, you know, think about what it must be like to be a pioneer coming across the country. What would you what would you bring with you and why? How would you feel leaving all of your friends and family behind and all these things? And, and as I reviewed those books and, and thought about those particular passages, I'm always thinking about my, my former students, native students, who would be sitting there thinking, you know, this is not my experience. I can't imagine that. I don't want to imagine that. That's not, that's not appropriate for me to be put into those shoes. And, and so that's kind of a, a really uh, troubling aspect. And of course, there's language that's reinforcing of stereotypes and, and misconceptions. And then the other piece that's, that's interesting is looking at teachers' editions of these textbooks. 
the types of activities that are encouraged and the types of questions that are encouraged for teachers to ask students tend to be really low level. And, and so I think it sends a message just like the, the fact that there isn't much in the textbook in the first place about indigenous experiences sends and reinforces this message that, oh, it's actually not that important. And um, this is just something we're going to, you know, get through so that we can move on to the civil war or whatever else we, we really want to focus on. It, it's all within those progress narratives oftentimes, right? Westward expansion is part of the sea to signing, shining sea that's not framed as, as eastward invasion, right? I think we should, we should use the, the war of eastern aggression to play off the, <laughs> the, the old southern rewriting of, of uh, telling of, of the northern aggression. But yeah, it's now, I mean, there's just so many ways that it seeps into the narrative. I mean, in Texas, I think I've mentioned it before, we, you know, we talk about Spanish Texas at a time when indigenous nations completely controlled the trade routes and really the, the state as a whole, which is why Mexico actually encouraged white immigration into the state in the first place is because there was so much indigenous control, yet we call it Spanish Texas because they had a flag. So you were recently published in the October issue of Social Education. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Your article is titled, Now You Can't Just Do Nothing, Unsettling the Settler Self Within Social Studies Education. Do you mind telling us a bit more about your article? Sure. So this piece was probably the hardest piece I've ever written. And I, I really found myself procrastinating and um, thinking really carefully, talking to a lot of different people and, and troubling through what the expectation was. And so Pat Avery asked me to, to think about doing something on settler colonialism in social studies. And it was one of those experiences where I was very honored to be asked to contribute this piece, but I also wondered if I truly was the most qualified person for it. As a, another white woman, do we really need to hear from more white people about this topic? And after talking to a lot of the, the people that I'm fortunate enough to to call my mentors and, and who have helped me through in a, a lot of different aspects of my own professional journey, it it came clear became clear that yeah, actually we do need some settler scholars to trouble through this stuff and to do it in public spaces and um, to take responsibility for that, not just to, to assume that by talking about identity and these kinds of topics that we might be actually taking the space that, that should be shared with indigenous partners and communities. And so this particular piece actually looks at some of my own experiences and, and troubling through that identity and uh, as both a teacher and a teacher educator, but also then thinking about how to move forward and, and what to do in terms of being, and I, I don't want to say an ally. I mean, I, I would love to be considered an ally by community partners, but I, I don't feel like it's my place to call myself an ally. And I feel like I can do the best that I can in terms of standing in solidarity with some of the, the needs of communities. But the first thing I need to do is, is understand my own background, unsettle myself, um, and then start thinking about how 
my own background of settler colonialism continues to infiltrate into my own work. Can you talk more about the notion of unsettling yourself? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that, and I, I think the terminology there is is interesting in that obviously we're thinking about settler colonialism. And so if you're a, a descendant of settlers or a, a direct settler yourself, first of all, thinking about what does it mean to settle a place, to claim a place, to occupy space. And that alone, I think, can be a powerful conversation to have with yourself. And then this other piece that I think is important is the idea that it's uncomfortable, it's unsettling, it's definitely disturbing to go through this this history. And I, I talk a little bit about, for instance, one of the um, experiences that, that I had had just recently, just within the past few years while at Montana State, working with partners up in, in the Blackfeet country and learning that one of my research partners, his great-grandfather was put on a train to Carlisle Indian School in the same small town where my grandmother was living at the time. And my grandmother was three years old at the time, and Brad's great-grandfather was 10. And it's a very, very small town. <laughs> and so to, to have that sort of connection to a, a place in a very powerful way, it, it definitely made us both think a little bit more about our own collaboration, our, our own identities, how we view history, history and geography and government and all of, of the social studies disciplines, even within that very specific space. And, and it was a pivotal moment for sure. And so I think, I think this idea of unsettling yourself requires kind of that deep dive into your own personal and family history. And then, and, and for some people, it may be fairly straightforward. For other people, it, it may take a lot of digging to figure out, okay, exactly how does my family play into, or how do I play into the settler colonial history of the United States? Right, because you have the people who are like, Oh, you know, my family didn't emigrate here until the 1900s, right? What do I have to do with settler colonialism? How how am I how am I responsible for that? Yeah, and and that's it's interesting because I had a friend just a few days ago say that same thing to me, and and this is somebody who's highly educated and and really thought that because of her family's more recent connection to this physical space that that she's off the hook. And of course, it's it's so much more complicated than that. And um, everything from the ongoing legacies of land disputes and and so on. It's it's really obvious in say reservation border towns where it doesn't doesn't matter how recently you've moved to that space. If you're white, you have different kinds of of histories, legacies, privileges that that definitely come into play in that space. Versus if you're native, if you're a native kid and you walk into Walmart, you're going to be treated differently than if you're a white kid and you walk into Walmart. And and so helping people think through those things and, and how settler colonialism is both a personal legacy. And in, in my case and in some other people's cases, it's it's something that we can trace more specifically on that personal level. But it's also obviously a social and societal institutional phenomenon as well. 
Would you say, so is this something you've done with your students in classes where you really bring out your backgrounds and talk about the settler self and, and your the roles and legacies around these issues? And how, how has it worked? Like what, what advice would you have for us if you're, if you kind of are a teacher who wants to engage in those activities? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important, both, um, especially in, in terms of say methods courses and, and teacher education, because it serves as a, an opportunity for modeling as well as, as getting to know your students and, and just do good practice. But certainly even within my high school classroom, I would, do this kind of, of work and try to be as transparent as possible about my family's background and, and who I am, where I come from, why I was there and, and the story that brought me to that particular school and that particular classroom. And I, I think part of that is because I like to tell stories. And again, I'm learning to try to not tell too many stories and to, to create space for my own students to tell their stories. But yeah, we we start each semester in my methods class with a, a kind of autobiographical exercise. And for that, they think a little bit about their own background and specifically in terms of connections to indigenous nations and so forth. And and usually it's pretty minimal at the beginning. And, and most of my students, not all, but most of my students identify as white and and then by the end of the semester, they have to do a photo voice project where they bring in more rigorous and robust land acknowledgments as part of that project. And by then, they, they tend to do a, a much better, more thorough, they provide a more thorough explanation of their own settler identities and, and how they came to that particular space. I'm curious. I've ha- I've had the idea recently of one thing I might pursue. Not me, just as an individual. I for sure would want to reach out to our indigenous scholars and community members and student groups on campus. But I've wondered if if having more permanent, you know, acknowledgement, you know, statements on campus would be helpful. Have you, has have you seen that done? Have they done that at Montana State or anywhere else you've been aware of? That's a really timely question because we actually just did a professional development session in November. It was a a group of four or five of us, a couple of indigenous students and an indigenous faculty member, and then a couple of of white faculty members, including myself. And this particular session was focused on indigenizing your syllabus and started off by talking about land acknowledgements and and should there be say a standardized land acknowledgement at Montana State University that we could put into all of our syllabi we could put on our web page and so on and uh, as I mentioned earlier Montana State is actually in a really interesting space so there there were many many nations who have some sort of a connection to this particular geographic space it was uh, considered more of a common meeting hunting ground. And because of that, it's, you know, gets complicated pretty quickly when you're talking about like 12 different nations minimum that are, that have some sort of connection to the space and who gets listed first. And, and, you know, what if we leave somebody out and so on. And so we're still actually grappling with this question at MSU. I think we're moving toward having some sort of kind of general language that at least recognizes that Montana State is on indigenous lands. 
and then working with faculty members directly to try to, to bring more specificity into their unique content areas. So can you tell us a little bit about what advice you have for teachers trying to do this work? I know also in your article, you have a bunch of recommendations of readings, and I'm sure, you know, that's part of it is you got to educate yourself, you know, constantly around these issues. Can, so can you tell us what advice you'd have for teachers, especially teachers who are looking to unsettle the settler within? So I think the first step is really working hard to shift from a deficit orientation to what scholar Eve Tuck calls desire-centered orientation. And, and that means recognizing that communities and your students and their parents, their families have needs, they have interests, and they have strengths that are not going to be part of any curriculum that, that you have. They're not going to be represented in any special educational program or kit teaching kit that you might receive. And so the first, I think, piece is, is recognizing that to find out more about those spe- community-specific desires, you need to step outside of your classroom. You need to actually get to know people in your community and be involved with them. And Dan, like you were suggesting, that relationship needs to be ongoing. It needs to be, be sustained over long periods of time. And, and that can be really difficult for, for teachers who are very busy, for scholars who are, you know, often trying to, to crank through publications and, and engage in a bunch of different research projects at once. Um, but it's, it's really, really important. And along with that, I think, patience and being really willing to learn is is another key aspect for the process. I mean, the number one lesson is is just as a teacher being able to shift from that position of I'm the expert, here's what you need to know to I'm a learner, what can I learn from the community and then how can that inform and enhance what I already am doing or what I need to do better and and how can we work together to make that happen? I know one resource you have in there that just got released this last year that I think is really helpful. I'd read An Indigenous People's History by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And our episode 67 guest, uh, Debbie Reese, is one of the authors who helped to adapt that to a young people's history, which could be really good for a lot of age groups. And I think even having those in your classrooms, using them as as primary texts in certain times, but also using those as reference texts. When issues come up, we can go, you can go look and challenge and see what would be indigenous perspectives on, on those issues. And so I know I'm excited. I, I picked up a copy at NCSS mm-hmm. and uh, a few other, they're coming up some really good young people's versions of these books that I think are just tremendous to have in your classroom. So maybe your school could buy you some copies of that and you could use that in your class along with some of the other really good young people's versions that have come out. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, that book is phenomenal and certainly is, is one of the most powerful resources out there, especially for middle school and high school teachers and even younger. I mean, you can use it with even younger students for sure. And we're so fortunate to have some really great resources that have, have come out just recently. So there's a, a great article in Social Studies and the Young Learner about women indigenous change makers. And so I, I believe it was written by the Turtle Island Social Studies Collaborative and a really 
practical piece in terms of specific ideas for even very early elementary educators to to bring some powerful learning into their own classrooms. We've had them on our show. <laughs> it's, it's weird how that works, Oh, my right? goodness. <laughs> we haven't had Meredith McCoy on yet, and she is related to one of my colleagues. Hey. She is on our list. My, she, small, small world, yes. yes. Yeah, she will be an excellent, excellent contributor for sure. Another resource, and I don't know, can I, can I talk about resources that haven't come out yet? Why not? That are forthcoming? Do it, do it. <laughs> we like to think of where, you know, really... We're a living um, podcast. We do, we do social studies talk, but we break news here, too. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and so, we leak. Like, we're really a gossip podcast for, like, the newest, hottest, like, you know, articles coming out. So, please. Yeah. yeah. So, there's a, there's a new book coming out, should be coming out sometime this year, authored by Dr. Sibzalian, one of your, your former guests. Oh, my goodness. And some other authors. And it focuses on teaching about Lewis and Clark and how instead of thinking about this big adventure reframing the the experience so that it also includes indigenous perspectives and there's tremendous background information as well as all kinds of lesson plans for both elementary and secondary educators and really powerful lessons not just the kinds of things that i was talking about that you might find in a teacher's edition of a textbook these are are lessons that really promote deep inquiry and critical thinking and active learning and all the things that that are good education in addition to more uh, important and accurate anti-colonial understandings. I'm in. That sounds great. There really is. We're, we're very fortunate in the social studies that we have so many people doing great scholarship now. I don't, I've, you know, don't know how people are doing all this work. I don't know how, you know, Dr. Subzalian, for example, is doing another book. She, I thought she just came out with a book. Like, how do people come out with multiple books? I don't understand. But it's we're very fortunate. We're all benefiting from it. And but you know what matters is that it really changes the conversations in our classes and and our communities, and that we make a difference there. So I know uh, I've got some work to do, but we're working on it. And let's let's see what we can do. Thank you so much for for joining us. Well, thank you again. It was truly my honor. Oh, thank you. So remember, this is in the October issue of Social Education. Now you can't just do nothing. Unsettling the settler self within social studies education. Make sure to check it out, and we'll have the link directly on the show notes. Dr. Stanton, where can our listeners find you and your work online? So the best place is probably my faculty page on the university website, and I can share that link with you. I do have a Twitter account, but I'll be the first to admit, and this goes back to this whole idea of unsettling the settler within, I'm struggling with creating a, a Twitter presence, and I, I don't really know how I want that space to evolve and, and how to make it authentic in terms of my professional self, but, but also um, not drag me down rabbit holes and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you, might stay off, you might stay off then. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much right. just a big rabbit hole. Thank you so much. If you'd like to talk uh, about that the Twitter more, um, I'm always available for that. I've spent way too much time thinking about social media. So thank you for joining us. And we certainly do hope to continue the discussion online. Maybe people will tweet at you. Maybe you, will, you won't get on and you'll just enjoy your, the space you've created for yourself. But 
we, we'll have a conversation online. There you go. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on the Facebook and that one other place who we have mentioned at one time, but I totally forget. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. We will come to your house. And we, I mean, we, I mean we, if we you're will. close, if you, if you if look we're, close. If we end up at your house, we are going to probably... That does seem pretty like... I don't know, that's probably much. It's a little much, but if we're there, we're going to probably ask you to write a five-star review because yes. that helps people find this podcast. It really does. Algorithms, you've heard of them, that's what they like, five-star reviews. So click on it, click off it every day, click back on, that'll help us. And we will read it on the air. And Michael... Yes. Anyone read on the air? Yeah, so read it Read it for us, Michael. Sure. So we have this know. one, five stars and an invaluable resource. As a social studies curriculum leader, I am so appreciative of this podcast, whether it's wrestling with inquiry, tackling the nuances of teaching controversial issues, or working to ensure that social studies is a window for students to see beyond the classroom. There's always an episode to help that helps me dig deeper. My professional learning with my colleagues has become stronger thanks to this pod. That was from Rob right. Powers 22. Thank Rob you Powers very 22. much. Massachusetts guy. Well, if you're on Twitter, Rob Powers 22, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretkath. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.